Leaders of the G20 nations are meeting in India with Russia's invasion of Ukraine expected to be an important and divisive topic. It's Thursday, March 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, the political fallout in Greece after the country's worst rail disaster. More than 42 people were killed in a train collision this week. Plus, lawmakers in Texas are considering giving a year of Medicaid coverage to uninsured people who recently gave birth. It's an investment in the people who are raising our future and completely worth it. Also this hour, investigating the high number of accidents and deaths that happen in college ROTC programs. And investigators find foreign rivals were not behind the so-called Havana syndrome that affected U.S. diplomats. In sports, the Celtics win. Rain showers this morning in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The White House is joining congressional Democrats in calling for an across-the-board price cap on insulin. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers are hoping to renew the conversation around the high cost of insulin after a major drug maker this week announced a cap on out-of-pocket expenses for the medication. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre took aim at congressional Republicans who have voted against capping prices on insulin. Unfortunately, congressional Republicans are among the few left that believe insulin costs should be sky high. In fact, they are fighting to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act which would increase health care costs for American people and increase the deficit as well. But some Republicans appear open to capping the price of insulin. Senator Josh Hawley last month introduced legislation that would cap the monthly price of insulin at $25 for Medicare recipients and people enrolled in private health plans. Other Republicans have signaled support for the bill. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Residents in East Palestine, Ohio, will hold a town hall meeting tonight. They'll discuss the latest updates after last month's toxic train derailment. The EPA has ordered officials from Railroad Norfolk Southern to attend. Residents in East Palestine are trying to find out whether their homes are safe to live in. From member station WESA, Oliver Morrison reports the uncertainty is affecting the local real estate market. Realtors say people who agreed to buy homes in East Palestine have backed out, some have stopped looking, and that some families with young children are planning to move soon. Some homes are still selling at their originally agreed-upon price, but that's not always the case. Catherine Ash, a realtor who works near East Palestine, says one recent home listing from a couple getting a divorce has only received one offer, and it was very low. It was insulting. They, you know, are already in this terrible situation, and then now they feel like they're getting kicked in the face. Ash worries that nervous homeowners might start selling low and tank the market. For NPR News, I'm Oliver Morrison in Pittsburgh. Private company SpaceX has successfully launched a crew of astronauts early this morning from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Three, two, one. Engines full power and lift off. The crew six. Go Dragon, go Falcon. The crew is headed for the International Space Station. It includes a Russian cosmonaut, two American astronauts, and an astronaut from the United Arab Emirates. They'll spend up to six months on the space station conducting research and experiments. The team that's currently aboard the International Space Station is set to return to Earth next week. President Biden will present the Medal of Honor tomorrow to retired Army Colonel Paris Davis. The White House says Davis is being honored for conspicuous gallantry during the Vietnam War.
This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. We're getting a closer look at Governor Moore Healy's $55.5 billion budget. She unveiled it yesterday. WBUR Steve Brown reports it's getting mixed reactions. The conservative Mass Fiscal Alliance blasted the governor's plan for what it cites as a 14 percent increase in overall spending. The more progressive Mass Budget and Policy Center praised the proposal, saying the spending will help make the state more equitable, affordable and competitive. Doug Howgate of the Mass Taxpayers Foundation says the budget seems to provide tax relief, new investments, and money in reserves. You don't normally see budgets that do all three of those things, but those three things at the same time indicates, I think, the strong fiscal condition the state's in. Healy's budget now heads down the hall to the House, where they will scrutinize it and then come up with their own version later in the spring. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Nearly one-third of Massachusetts residents will need to re-enroll in state-sponsored health insurance. The normal process to figure out if you're eligible for the Mass Health Plan is starting next month. During the pandemic, people enrolled in the program didn't have to do anything to stay on. Governor Healy tells the Boston Globe she expects 300,000 people will get removed from Mass Health as a result. Several Boston city councilors want to expand remote access to city hearings. That access began at the start of the pandemic. The proposal would require boards and hearings to allow the public to testify on issues remotely, even for in-person meetings. Councilors tell the Boston Herald they have seen an increase in public testimony since allowing virtual attendance. Some state lawmakers want Massachusetts to join six other states in allowing people to compost themselves after death. The process is called natural organic reduction. WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports it uses heat and oxygen to convert bodies into soil. Framingham State Representative Jack Lewis is comfortable talking about death. He's an ordained minister by trade. He says he was inspired by stories from other states of farmers who wanted to return to their fields and a grandmother who wanted to nourish her rose garden. So he filed a bill here. Our bodies are merely temporary and that energy contained within them is something that we merely borrow. After our deaths, it provides comfort to many to know that that same energy could be released back in a very natural way into the environment that has long fed them. Lewis says he's had conversations with local religious leaders from several faiths who embrace the idea. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Celtics beat the Cleveland Cavaliers 117-113 to last night at the Garden. The Seas will host the Brooklyn Nets tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins will skate with the Buffalo Sabres. Rain showers this morning, cloudy this afternoon. The high will be in the mid to upper 40s, partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the upper 20s. Clouds tomorrow and in the lower 40s. Snow and rain tomorrow night into Saturday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families. Available at AECF.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. House Democrats are meeting in Baltimore. 
They're making plans to flip a few seats in the next election if they can and win back control of the House. Those very few seats mattered a lot. For two years, as you may recall, Democrats held narrow control of both the House and Senate, which meant they could pass a lot of their agenda. Now Republicans decide what's voted on in the House, which generally means the Democrats cannot pass anything unless Republicans agree to schedule the vote. Republicans control committees. They control investigations. That is what Democrats hope to change. And NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt has been listening to them in Baltimore, one of my favorite cities. Barbara, good morning. Good morning. Okay, so we should note that President Biden spoke to the House Democrats. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. If we did nothing, nothing, but implement what we've already passed and let the people know who did it for them, we win. Hmm, interesting. Is that true, though? Well, it's hard to say at this point. 2024 remains a ways away, um, but it does give Democrats a strategy, a, a record to run on. Biden pointed to the bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, legislation to boost the domestic manufacturing of semiconductor chips. And he made the case to lawmakers last night that it's politically beneficial for them to go home to their districts and simply explain to voters what they've done. Folks, you all know how much we've gotten done. But a lot of the country still doesn't know it. That's why the big job in front of us is implementing the laws we passed so people start to see it in their lives, all the benefits that are there because you produced it for them. You stepped up and got, got it done. He talked about getting shovels in the ground and cranes in the air on the infrastructure front. And he referenced a tunnel as an example of one of these uh, infrastructure projects that's being rebuilt here in Baltimore. He pulled up a, a mock-up of a sign for the renamed uh, tunnel called the Frederick Douglass Tunnel. And it had the words President Joe Biden at the top with, with big letters. So a very visual example of how Democrats want to, you know, take credit for these projects and stay that stay fresh in voters' minds. He was really in his element in the speech. Um, in many ways, it's a speech he's given before. We saw a lot of this messaging during the State of the Union, and uh, it really built on that. What was the dynamic between uh, Biden and House Democrats like? Well, this is a reminder of how much difference a year can make. Uh, the dynamic has changed quite a bit. At one point, uh, Biden traveled up to Capitol Hill to plead with Democrats for unity. You'll remember there were significant splits between centrists and progressive Democrats who couldn't agree on the price tag for major legislation like Build Back Better. Oh, yeah. But now, as you said, Democrats are in the minority. They find themselves not just uniting against the GOP majority, but also uniting around Biden himself. Does that clarify how they do intend to campaign then? I think it does in, in a sense. You know, there is a reality that in divided government, Democrats are going to have a very hard time passing any new legislation. So lawmakers seem on board with this strategy that Biden has articulated to defend what's already been done and make sure that voters back home know about it. NPR's Here's Barbara, uh, minority oh, leader, think, Hakeem uh, Jeffries. We're out of time for that, I think. Let's, uh, let's, let's pick ah. that up at another time. NPR's Barbara Sprunt, thanks so Sounds much. Good. Back in 2016, CIA officers at the American Embassy in Cuba began reporting the sudden onset of symptoms that included dizziness, headaches, balance problems. And then cases spread to other U.S. officials in other locations overseas. Suspicions grew that a U.S. adversary was responsible. But that's not what the U.S. intelligence community found in a new report. NPR's Greg Myrie is here to explain. Good morning, Greg. 
Good morning, Layla. So U.S. intelligence officials briefed a small number of journalists on the report yesterday, including you. What did they say? They said they did not find evidence linking any foreign country like Cuba or Russia or China to any of these episodes. Now, seven different intelligence agencies took part. Five said it was highly unlikely a foreign country was to blame. One said it was unlikely and one didn't take a position. Now, the intel officials went further saying this report found no credible evidence that a foreign adversary even had a weapon that could have inflicted this kind of harm. Okay, so if this was not an attack by an adversary, a foreign government, and there's no evidence a weapon was used, then what was causing this mystery illness? Well, exactly. No, that's that's the big question. Now, the two intelligence officials said that the individual cases vary. There was a range of symptoms, and this suggested there was no single cause for these health problems. Mm. Now, the report found the ailments are most probably related to pre-existing medical conditions, conventional illnesses, or environmental factors, and they, they acknowledge this won't be persuasive to those who have suffered and are still suffering very real health issues. Uh, the official said the report put the intel community in a position where it feels it knows much more about what didn't happen, but they still don't have all the answers to what did happen. Now, I know we've been hearing about the so-called Havana syndrome for years, but if you could remind us how serious, how long-lasting some of these ailments have been. Right. Many of these U.S. intelligence officials and diplomats recall the exact moment when they suffered sharp, piercing pain in their head, often accompanied by a loud noise or ringing. Many remain convinced this was a targeted attack and and they were hit with some sort of energy weapon, perhaps a microwave device. Many say they were healthy, but since that day, they've suffered just years of physical problems that include migraines and vision trouble, memory loss, a number of them have had to retire. I've been in contact with two of them. Uh, They didn't want to speak on the record, but I did speak with attorney Mark Zaid. He's representing about 25 clients. He says he's had access to some classified information and believes that more information will emerge. I can at least say the U.S. government has a lot more information than what it is publicly revealing today. And that is where a lot of the unanswered questions arise from. Unanswered questions. So will there be answers? Is this essentially settled now? Well, not entirely, Layla. Uh, More cases are being reported, including some this year, though the numbers have slowed. There's about 1,500 cases reported since 2016, though the cases with the most serious unexplained illnesses appear to be around uh, two dozen or so. Uh, People who suffered these ailments are receiving medical treatment and in some cases have been receiving financial compensation. NPR's Greg Myrie. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. The Chicago mayor's race is down to two candidates. Incumbent Mayor Lori Lightfoot is out. Two challengers made it into the next round. Paul Vallis is one, and the other is on the line. Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. Welcome to the program, sir. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. And congratulations. Uh, We have been told that this race is down to a choice for effectively the Democratic Party, Democrats being the majority in Chicago. You've got a centrist candidate, and you're a progressive candidate. Do you see it that way? Well, it it certainly is a little bit more uh, dramatic than that. In fact, um, you know, my opponent um, has self-identified as more of a Republican. In fact, he made that very distinction clear right after we elected the first black president, President Barack Obama, someone who said that he fundamentally opposes, um, you know, abortion, reproductive rights, and he is supported by leadership 
um, that is in very much <laughs> in complete support of the January 6th insurrection. So this is really about uh, not just a progressive Democrat, that's you know who I am and the wing of the party that I reflect, but someone who is aligned with the most extreme uh, radical end of the Republican Party. I think that he's going to paint you as extreme, particularly on questions like how to handle crime, which people are concerned about in Chicago. Well, I live in a community on the west side of Chicago. It's a neighborhood, it's called Austin, and it is a, a very beautiful, dynamic community, but it certainly is um, one of the more violent neighborhoods. And uh, my wife and I were raising three children here, and uh, we certainly have a, a tremendous incentive to make sure that our communities are safe. And so what I call for is a very sweeping public safety plan that gets at the root causes of violence, but we also did with the immediacy of the violence in the city of Chicago. So we're promoting 200 more detectives within the rank and file. We're spending to make sure that we implement the consent decree with all expediency, but we're also gonna hire uh, young people and we're gonna make those positions, positions year round because there's a direct correlation between hiring young people in violence reduction, opening up our mental health clinics and making sure that our first responders um, our social workers and uh, EMTs, because nearly 40% of the 911 calls that come through mm -hmm. um, are mental health crises. So we're attacking the root causes, but we're also dealing with the immediate crisis. I, I want to make sure that I understand something you're telling me, because Paul Vallis is supported by police unions and has said he wants to increase funding on police. You're described as not committing to increased funding police, but you just told me you want 200 more detectives. Is it correct that you want to increase some parts of the police department while cutting the budget for others? Is that your stance? So basically, we're doing what works, right? Safe American cities all over the country have one thing in common. And what that is, is they actually invest in people. So, of course, we've heard you know feedback from rank and file members who want to make sure that we have you know, a national averages of supervisors and rank and file members, which the national average is around 10 to one. We're incredibly bloated. We can make sure that those services are deployed in an equitable way, but more importantly, that we do it in a smart way. If we're gonna have a safe city, we do what safe American cities do around the country, and that's invest in people. So promoting detectives within the rank and file, making sure we're spending to make sure that the consent decree is actually enacted. But again, our mental health centers have to be reopened. We need to have front responders that can respond to the 911 calls that are mental health crises. These are all dynamics and presentations that are sweeping, and this is what you know the city of Chicago has called for, and I'm glad to be in a position to build a better, stronger, safer Chicago. On the, in the few seconds we have left are, left, are we discussing the right issue here? Are, is it correct that crime is the thing that is on a lot of people's minds in Chicago and the thing the next mayor must address? Well, it's definitely a serious problem. As I said, um, you know, my wife and I, we're experiencing it every single day right outside our front door, raising our three children. So, you know, absolutely. But our campaign has caught fire. We're going to make history, elect a teacher to the fifth floor. And I'm looking forward to leading a better, stronger, safer Chicago. And if folks want to join that fight, they can go to brandonforchicago.com. Fifth floor, of course, that's uh, Chicago City Hall, the office where uh, Mayor Richard Daly once, uh, once ruled, if that's the right word. Brandon Johnson, thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much. Good to talk with you. This is NPR News. This is 9.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We hear from, coming up, we hear from a Syrian refugee who lost family and her home when earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. 
I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, developers, landlords, and tenants agree there is not enough housing in Boston and the housing that we do have is too expensive. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has a proposal to help address the problem by capping rent increases. But some advocates say it could make things worse. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. An emigre from Hungary rose to become one of the most powerful women in the U.S. government last century, but little was known about her until a local history teacher unearthed her archives. There was handwritten letters from Harry Truman, President Roosevelt, General Eisenhower, Lyndon Johnson. It was a treasure trove of history. Learn about the high school teacher and his new biography of the remarkable Anna Rosenberg when you listen to All Things Considered, starting at 4 this afternoon on 90.9 WBUMAR. A good chance of rain this morning, then it'll be cloudy with a high of 46. Tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 29. Overnight, skies clear, but tomorrow clouds slowly return for an overcast day with a high near 42. There's a slight chance of rain late Friday afternoon, then snow is likely overnight into Saturday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from HBO Max. The HBO original drama series Perry Mason, starring Matthew Reese, returns for a new season, Monday at 9 p.m. on HBO Max. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publisher of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families, available at aecf.org. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool, Customers can see options and rates side-by-side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. When the earthquake that has now stolen more than 50,000 lives first hit in Turkey and Syria, we introduced you to Asala Shikhani, a resident of Antakya in Turkey, a teacher, a mother, a Syrian refugee who fled war 12 years ago. She was searching for shelter with her family, her building damaged, her uncle's family buried under the rubble of his home. She didn't have time to think about anything but immediate safety for her daughters and finding her missing loved ones. Antakya is a ghost city, ghost city. Nothing there, nothing there, no life at all. It was so chaotic, she didn't realize she'd injured her leg. Only now is she taking stock of what she's been through and what she's lost. When we last spoke, we promised to check back in with her. You hear me? It's Layla. How are you? Yeah, I hear you very well. I'm fine. And you, Layla? I'm doing okay. The last time we spoke, you were searching for your uncle's family. You had your daughters, your parents, but you didn't know where they were. Did you find them? Yeah, we uh, took all of them under the ruin, all their bodies. So none of them survived? All of them no, none of them, none of them. How many people? Sahar, Khadija, Rawa, Gina, Sami. They are eight. Eight people. Eight people. So you found them in Antakya? Yes, we, all of them now under the ground, and we put them in their tombs, and this is why we decided to go out of Hatay. 
They left the Turkish province of Hatay, where her home in Antakya collapsed, along with nearly every building in the city. She's staying with four other families hundreds of miles away in the city of Bursa, in a house that belongs to a friend. But soon, she'll head back closer to Antakya, to the city of Rahanli, where she taught at a school run by the nonprofit Kerem Foundation for Syrian Refugees. That foundation found her a home. I will leave my dad and mom here. Mm-hmm. just to check the situation there. My daughters, I don't want to leave them because we live together or die together. We don't know what will happen. So, inshallah, I will took my daughters to stay in Rehanli, especially that, you know, Ramadan comes close. We need to establish and settle down a little bit. Before, when we spoke, you didn't have anything from your house. You were in your pajamas. You didn't even have your hijab. Were you able to get anything from your belongings from the house? You know, the first thing that I took out from my home, my brother prosthesis. My brother is Shaheed, and I keep his prosthesis because he has an amputees before he's dying. Oh. And I took my brother prosthesis with me to keep it with me, just to feel that I have something. A piece of him. From Syria. Yeah, a piece of him. She calls her brother a shaheed, a martyr. What she took from the house was a prosthetic leg that he wore before he was killed in the civil war in Syria. How was he killed? In the battle, inside in the revolution, by airplane, Russian airplanes, bomb, and the youngest one in the prison. Wow. So much loss. Yes, yes. What else did you take from the house? I'm not able to take everything because it's a little bit risky. I'm trying to walk slowly, slowly. I'm trying to take the simple and, you know, easy things. Oh, so you went inside. Yes. It was dangerous. So you went inside before it collapsed. Yes. Yes, I was inside. I I must to go inside. I, I need. I have to. I have to. Now your daughters, Lillian and Sausan, how are they doing? One is five years old and one is 14? Uh, yes, 14, Sausan, and Lilian, she is uh, five and a half. Mm-hmm. They are fine, they are fine. Uh, just my oldest daughter, she keeps alone, so I want her to back to, to the life. So I need to settle down our life again, inshallah. Yeah, you said she sits alone? Yeah, she keeps silent and, and just um, watching videos. I'm trying to make her far from YouTube, from all the past. And especially she lost her private teacher. I, she was with her before a day. Mm-hmm. Every day she came to stay with her because I'm working, you know, and I'm Antakya, I'm going to Rihanli every day. So this teacher was very close to her, more than me. So she lost her and she needs time. Is she watching videos of the earthquake? Yes, of earthquake and our home, uh, her teachers, schools, her friends, like this. Hmm. Are all of her friends safe? Not all of them. You know, all Antakya, every family lost some people from yeah. their families. How many people total did you lose in the earthquake that you knew? I know your uncle's family, you said, was eight people. Yes, I have my cousin. I have my friends for. Uh, I have... My neighbors. I lost Karam House Antakya students. Ten students from Antakya, they are Karam House students. They are my soul. <sighs> I'm sorry. We lost them, but we didn't lose their faces and their actions and all of the things they shared with us. 
now that you've buried your family and your daughters are safe and you are safe and you're getting your leg treated, what are you thinking about for your future? What are your biggest concerns about the future? The first thing that I have a pain in my soul, I have pain physically, hmm. but I have pain, the biggest pain that I don't belong to here. Where is my belonging? For where? For whom? For what? For me, I don't think about the future at all. Just I need to settle down present. We don't know our present to put our future. After 10 and 12 years ago in Turkey, a little bit, I, I have a new belonging. But now I lost belonging. Belonging is only empathy, humanity, someone who can hug us, someone who welcome us. I look at the faces, the streets, all of these things, it's, it doesn't belong to me. And I don't belong to here. In Bursa. I know the first days it will not be easy for us, but I will keep trying and struggling in the life. Asala Shekhani joining me from Bursa, Turkey. Thank you so much, Asala. You're welcome, and thank you for you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, a station master has been charged with manslaughter by negligence in what's being called the worst train disaster in Greece's history. And lawmakers in Texas are considering new bills that would let uninsured people stay on Medicaid for a year after giving birth. It's 729. Join Consalsa host Jose Maso Friday, March 10th at City Space for an evening of live salsa music, dancing, and conversation. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer. On view now. Plan your visit at pem.org. And AL Prime Energy Consultant providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov spoke briefly today on the sidelines of a meeting of G20 foreign ministers in India. U.S. officials say their discussion in New Delhi lasted about 10 minutes, during which the State Department says Blinken underscored continued U.S. support for Ukraine and urged Moscow to reverse its decision to suspend the last remaining nuclear arms treaty with the U.S. Blinken also repeated calls for Russia to release American Paul Whelan. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi is calling on G20 foreign ministers to find common ground on Ukraine. Raksha Kumar has more. Prime Minister Modi addressed the G20 leaders via a video message. He said multilateralism is in crisis and that the country should resolve deep global issues together. The meeting is significant as foreign ministers of Russia and China will share space with leaders of the West. Delegates from the EU and the US have already blamed Russia for the Ukraine war and subsequent global financial crisis. Modi's remarks come at a time when India has not condemned the war directly. Last week, central bank chiefs met to discuss inflation and debt relief for weaker economies. For NPR News, I'm Raksha Kumar in Bangalore. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
People who receive SNAP benefits are about to see those benefits decrease. Federal funding for larger food stamp payments in the pandemic is ending after today. As WBUR's Dave Faniff reports, the Greater Boston Food Bank is bracing for that change. The emergency allotments have allowed people to get up to $95 more a month. The Massachusetts House is expected to take up a supplemental budget today that has $130 million to partially fund the expanded program for a few more months. Aaron McAleer is CEO of Project Bread, an organization that connects people with food. She says even if the state money is approved, it will not replace all the benefits being lost. So this is going to make sure that families have three more months of receiving 40 percent of what they received before. McAleer says SNAP feeds over 600,000 households in Massachusetts. She says that's 10 times the number of people that charities can feed. But 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanoff. Nahant officials want to take more time to deal with the town's coyote problem. They're extending the town's contract with the Department of Agriculture and Wildlife. Nahant hired hunters to thin the coyote population after the animals attack people and their pets. Wildlife officials say only one coyote has been killed so far. A new report shows Honda Accords are the most frequently stolen car in Massachusetts. That comes from the car insurance quote website quote wizard using FBI crime data. Honda Civics and Toyota Camrys are also high on the list of targets for car thieves in the state. There is good news. The number of total car thefts in Massachusetts has decreased nearly 40 percent since 2011. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Celtics held off a late-game rally by the Cavaliers at the Garden last night. Boston beat Cleveland 117-113. to The Seas will host the Brooklyn Nets tomorrow. Tonight, the Bruins will host the Buffalo Sabres. And at spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox and Astros played to a 4-4 tie. The Sox will play the Phillies this afternoon. A good chance of rain this morning, followed by an overcast afternoon in the mid-40s. Tonight, mostly cloudy skies gradually clear. It'll be in the upper 20s and low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy and low 40s. A slight chance of rain in the afternoon tomorrow, but then a good chance of a rain-snow mix overnight into Saturday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from EBSCO, committed to making it easy for people to discover and access library resources anytime, from anywhere, with bibliograph and linked data technology. Learn more at EBSCO.com. And from LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against tax identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com slash NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Folden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. A railroad union says it warned operators about poor maintenance, chronic understaffing, and faulty automation before two trains collided in the worst rail accident Greece has ever seen. Death toll is now up to at least 43 after a passenger train and a freight train wound up on the same tracks barreling toward each other at a combined speed of 100 miles per hour. Independent journalist Lydia Manalidu is with us this morning from Athens. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Steve. So what are you hearing from family members of people who were on that passenger train? 
Well, many family members are still trying to figure out exactly where their loved ones are. You know, we know that there are 44, at least 44 people who died. Um, only 11 of those people have been identified so far. Uh, and that's partly because, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard descriptions uh, of the uh, of the collision. Yeah. Um, this was a high-speed collision. Uh, temperatures in some of the front wagons reached more than um, you know, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And so the, the wagons disintegrated and, and so did some of the, you know, some of the people inside them, it's really hard to identify them. And so family members have been going from hospital to hospital. Um, some are going to the collision site. You know, of course, they're very desperate to to find their loved ones. And right now they are, um, some people who haven't yet found their, their loved ones who are still missing unaccounted for, mm-hmm. uh, they're giving DNA samples um, in the hope that, you know, th- there will be a match. Uh, and from what we understand, uh, some of those uh, d- d- determinations will be made today. And of course, it's, that's a phone call that nobody wants to to get to find out that, you know, there's been a DNA match with yeah. a person who's in, yeah, dead. That's got to be worse than knowing the awful truth. And I want to note something else. I said in our introduction, at least 43 were dead. You gave us an updated number of at least 44, which just underlines that we don't really even know uh, the, the full toll here, do we? That's uh, that's exactly right, yeah. Uh, now, uh, let's talk about what may have happened. And we should underline it's early, it can take months, it can take years to figure out what truly, truly caused a collision of this kind. However, authorities have arrested a station manager on the railroad. What was this person's job? Yeah, uh, so uh, this person's job uh, and, and, and where the, the, the mistake seems to have happened is that they were supposed to uh, switch the, the track, uh, the track line, and to give the go-ahead to the passenger train to go. So um, j- let me just back up for a second and say that one thing that we do know at this point is that the two trains that collided, um, they were traveling on the same track towards each other for several minutes before the crash, hmm. even though this was a double track line. And, uh, and and so how does this happen? According to the Greek prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, who gave a statement yesterday, this was partly because of human error, partly because of um, the rail, st- uh, rail manager's um, mistake. Uh, but, you know, of course, railway uh, uh, railway worker unions have been saying for years that actually there are much, much bigger issues. This cannot just be pinned to, to a single person's human error, uh, that the system has been in a dire state. There's outdated equipment, staffing shortages, uh, and this is partly because of the privatization that we've seen over the past few years. Yeah, mistakes happen, but the several minutes after the mistake is the horrifying part when no one caught it, or at least no one caught it in time. Right. Lydia, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That's journalist Lydia Amanalidu in Athens. Abortion restrictions in Texas trained greater attention on the state's high maternal mortality rate. Now lawmakers are considering extending Medicaid access to make childbirth safer. Elena Rivera from member station KERA in Dallas explains. Right now, Medicaid covers half of all births in Texas. Many rely on that coverage to access everything from doctor's appointments to prenatal vitamins. But the coverage ends two months after giving birth. Victoria Ferrel Ortiz applied for it after learning she was pregnant in 2017. She had just left a nonprofit job in Dallas and didn't have insurance. It was a time of like a lot of learning and, and turnaround and pivoting for me because we weren't necessarily expecting that kind of life change. Ferrel Ortiz says the coverage was sometimes confusing to use. She spent hours on the phone trying to find a doctor nearby. Because it took so much time. And then sometimes the representative that I would speak to wouldn't know the answer. 
She was glad she was covered when she gave birth, but losing insurance when her baby was so young was stressful. The two months window just puts more pressure on women to wrap up things in a messy, not necessarily beneficial way. In Texas, most uninsured adults have few options. Unlike 39 other states, Texas didn't expand Medicaid, which means hundreds of thousands here make too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to afford other health insurance. Pregnancy Medicaid helps fill the gap temporarily. Close to half a million Texans are currently enrolled in the program. The majority are Hispanic and Latinx women between 19 and 29. Carrie White is a professor at UT Austin who studies reproductive health care in Texas. She says even those who qualify for pregnancy Medicaid have trouble using it. What it looks like from a bird's eye view is a big patchwork with some missing holes in the quilt. White says many doctors and clinics won't accept pregnancy Medicaid or have long waits for appointments. But she thinks extending the coverage to a year after childbirth would help improve patients' health. White says it would be especially helpful for people with chronic diseases like high blood pressure or diabetes. And when those health conditions become exacerbated, they can have very dangerous consequences for people, regardless of whether or not they get pregnant again. About 20% of pregnancy-related deaths in Texas stem from chronic diseases. White says a lot of these deaths are preventable. They're trying to raise a new baby. They need to get back to work. And it makes it really difficult for them to do those things when they aren't able to get medical attention to see what's going on. Black Texans are affected by these disparities at higher rates than other groups. They are twice as likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than their white counterparts. Diana Forrester is with the advocacy group Texans Care for Children. She says a full year of postpartum coverage will make childbirth safer in Texas. And both Democrats and Republicans are listening. I think we have the opportunity to get 12 months postpartum passed. I feel like the momentum's there. Victoria Ferrell Ortiz says her pregnancy was one of the biggest changes her body went through. Her daughter Amelie will be five soon. But looking back, she wishes she had more time to address health concerns before her coverage ran out. If I was able to talk to people in the legislature about extending coverage, I would say to do that. It's an investment in the people who are raising our future, and completely worth it. Texas lawmakers have until the end of the legislative session in May to make this change and find other ways to improve the health care that pregnant Texans get every year. For NPR News, I'm Elena Rivera in Dallas. This story comes from NPR's partnership with KERA and Kaiser Health News. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, the mother of an ROTC cadet is demanding accountability after her daughter died during a training event. And in our next hour, Israelis are still protesting a new government plan to weaken the judiciary as the Israeli military continues to pursue Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. Rain and patchy fog this morning, clouds in mid-40s this afternoon, tonight mostly cloudy in the upper 20s. Overnight, skies gradually clear, then they get cloudy again Friday morning. It'll be in the low 40s with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Snow and rain are likely overnight into Saturday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 743. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. Now in business news, the founder and owner of the Bay State Banner is stepping down. He's run the African-American-focused weekly newspaper for nearly six decades. Melvin B. Miller says he's selling to a new black ownership team. It'll be run by TV news video journalist Ron Mitchell and filmmaker Andre Stark. The terms of the deal have not been disclosed. The Boston business group A Better City will soon have new leadership. CEO Rick Domino is leaving the organization next month after nearly 30 years. Kate Deneen will then step into the role. She has been the group's executive vice president for the last four years. Two Boston companies are teaming up to create a new beer called Sticky Bun Stout. It's a partnership between Harpoon Brewing and Flower Bakery and Cafe. The limited-release beer is made with real sticky buns from flour. A portion of the proceeds will benefit Camp Harborview, which works with more than 1,000 local teens and families each year. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. The mother of a 19-year-old ROTC cadet killed in a Humvee crash in Idaho last summer has become part of a community of survivors who say there are too many preventable non-combat deaths. Investigators found a series of broken rules and sloppy oversight. But as Alaska Public Media's Jeremy Shea reports, family members are finding few ways to hold the military accountable. These are flowers from her funeral. In her living room near Anchorage, Jessica Swan has a table and shelves adorned with artifacts of her daughter's life. This is a knife she carried with her every single day. Her handprints from second grade making a butterfly. In an oversized portrait, Mackenzie Wilson, short-haired, petite, and blonde in glasses, smiles to the whole room in her blue Air Force ROTC dress uniform. Wilson was one of 19 ROTC cadets on a four-day visit of Mountain Home Air Force Base in Idaho last June. Her mom recalls her last phone call with her daughter. She said safety on base was super sketch, and then she was dead. An old Humvee she was riding in with two other cadets flipped on a gravel road. The untrained, unsupervised cadets weren't even supposed to be in that Humvee which was for use only as a target. Manny Vega says Wilson's case fits a pattern. We have negligent decisions being made. We have toxic leadership that hasn't been put in check. Vega is a retired Marine and former police investigator. In 2018, his 21-year-old son died shortly after entering boot camp with the Marines. He started the nonprofit Save Our Service Members to help families work through the exhausting bureaucracy that can seem to hide what happened to their loved ones. 
Vegas says it also shines a light on a lack of accountability for non-combat military deaths. I'm not daydreaming this. We're not nicely. This is, this is a substantial problem that we have to address. Humvee rollover accidents are particularly common in the armed forces. Congressional watchdogs have documented thousands of non-combat accidents involving tactical vehicles that have killed and maimed hundreds of service members. In the civilian world, negligence can lead to lawsuits. But Vega says a 1950 Supreme Court decision known as the Ferris Doctrine basically gives the military legal immunity. He says that makes sense for combat, but not for training. Vega says he's been trying to find members of Congress who will champion a legislative fix. So far, the only person publicly facing any accountability in Wilson's death is another 19-year-old cadet who was behind the wheel. Idaho is prosecuting him for manslaughter. Meanwhile, Mackenzie Wilson's mom doesn't want her daughter's death explained away as just another tragedy. I mean, my goal is accountability. Mackenzie's death was completely preventable. And also awareness. Awareness that teenagers are being killed on American soil what's being stated to be training accidents. The Air Force initially suggested Wilson's death was a training accident. It declined an interview on tape for this story, but one Air Force investigator told two officials they're suspected of crimes in connection with the crash. The Air Force said it's committed to applying lessons from the investigation, but eight months after the crash, they have not said if they will take any disciplinary action against their own personnel. For NPR News, I'm Jeremy Shea in Anchorage. This is NPR News. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. It's an oatmeal kind of morning this yes. morning. A little yeah. chilly, a little rainy, but plenty of room to learn. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so we're actually going to dive into the 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 policy discussion around and the pros and cons and arguments around rent control. Um, so we'll have uh, voices and representation on both sides of that conversation. You know, what are the arguments? What does the data say? What are the concerns? How do we break it down? Clearly, this is really significantly back in the public sphere right now. Mm -hmm. So we'll have a state representative. We'll have um, an advocate for landlords. We'll have lots of voices um, who have made public statements and cases and arguments. And let's just run through it and see if we can really understand at a deeper level what that debate is about and what people are excited and or worried about. Yeah, that's great because it's so complex. It is complex, but it is doable to know it and understand it. Yeah. And then yeah. after that? We'll do some sports today. The Boston Bruins. Holy shnikey. No Bruins. <laughs> I've so. never heard that word before. Okay. <laughs> so we'll do some sports today, too. All right. Sounds good. I'll try and work that into my vocabulary. <laughs> Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.50. Mornings are dark this time of year, and the news can feel that way, too. Morning Edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Broadway in Boston, celebrating 20 years with Lexus with the newly announced 23-24 season, featuring Disney's Frozen, Moulin Rouge, Girl from the North Country, Company, and MJ the Musical. Season tickets and more information are available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve with Layla and with the man who made a film about Alexei Navalny. The Russian opposition leader? Yeah, yeah, you know, one of the few remaining opponents of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, dangerous job. Which the filmmaker makes clear in the first question that he asks in this documentary. If you are killed, if this does happen, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? Oh, come on, Daniel. No, no way. It's like you're making a movie for the case of my death. This filmmaker caught Navalny in one of his last moments of freedom before he vanished into a Russian prison. Incredible. I mean, I know this caught a lot of attention, I think, when it appeared on HBO Max, right? Yeah, I'd kind of missed it, but now it's back in theaters, so we called the man who made it. And can you say your name, especially the last one, to make sure I don't screw it up, the pronunciation? My name, my la- last name is Roar, like a lion. Roar, not Roarer, but Roar. Daniel Roar. That's right. Okay. Daniel Roar is a distinctive person to interview. We found him on an active film set where he's helping out his wife, who's also a filmmaker. We heard noises of production in the background, and then one of our producers detected this scratching. It did sound it like some, it sounded like someone's writing, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm painting. I'm painting. You are not. Are you seriously painting? Turns out the director paints the way that some people doodle or I flip a pen, a way to burn off energy and stay on task. He did this while he was working with Navalny in Germany. You know, I was always drawing and painting when we were shooting the movie, and he would always ask me, why am I always, I'm always sketching? And I'd said, well, Navalny, I, I have this this condition called ADD, and I have trouble focusing, so if I'm able to draw and paint, it helps me focus. And he turns to Maria, his, his lieutenant, and he says, oh, how wonderful that we hire a director with special needs. A remark the filmmaker shrugs off. This speaks to Navalny's sense of humor. Navalny, as a prankster, he's hilarious. He takes the piss out of everybody. Which was Navalny's attitude as he built a political organization and challenged Russia's President Vladimir Putin at election time. I was banned from everything. Television, banned. Newspapers, blacklisted. Rallies, forbidden. Yet his anti-corruption group drew widespread attention and finally an apparent response. The plane makes an emergency landing in Siberia. Navalny then rushed to the hospital where he was put on a ventilator. His spokeswoman saying Navalny was poisoned. Amid a worldwide uproar in 2020, Russia let him travel to Germany to recover from his exposure to a nerve agent. And that was when the filmmaker and painter Daniel Rohr was able to find him. Rohr filmed as Navalny resumed his opposition work from Germany. He produced a social media video. He showed a chart of Russian figures linked with his poisoning, and Navalny mouthed the refrain of a pop song. And then Navalny made prank calls to those suspects, one of whom apparently confessed. He spilled the whole story. This is unbelievable. I think what's important and what, what scholars and academics will write about is how Navalny weaponizes humor to further his political ambitions. People love watching his what should be dry, investigative, anti-corruption videos. And it's because he is so entertaining and so charismatic. I, I feel that you're telling me something, though, about the nature of the man and also the business that he is or was in. He's a political figure. But, of course, he has no power, he holds no office, he has little chance of ever having an office, and so he needs to be a performer, a dramatist, an attention-getter. Yeah, I think political theater is a very important aspect of Navalny's brand. 
And despite the long odds, Rohr came away believing Navalny could indeed prevail someday. And it seems to be just a, a part of Russian history that if you want to make your mark, you have to do your time in the gulag. Well, Navalny's putting in his time. He's forced to. And although that's very challenging for all of us, he's a man who, who asks of his supporters optimism. Navalny faced questions about who some of those supporters were. In his earlier career, he was a nationalist who criticized immigration. Though he has since adopted more liberal stances and attracted more liberal supporters, he was photographed at times marching alongside extremist groups. And Amnesty International once withdrew its support for him before restoring it. You ask him at one point, naturally, why do you sometimes associate with far-right nationalists in Russia? What did you think of his answer? His answer made me deeply uncomfortable. His essential answer was, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I'm okay with that, and I'm, I consider it's, it's my political superpower. I can talk to everyone. Anyway, well, they are citizens of Russian Federation, and if I want to fight Putin, if I want to be a leader of a country, I, can, I cannot just ignore the huge part of it. Navalny tells the filmmaker he once thought his growing support and fame would protect him. His poisoning showed otherwise. Yet as the filmmaker watched, he chose to leave Germany and return to Russia, where he is now in solitary confinement. I think it was a miscalculation. I think, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about whether or not it was the right decision, whether or not he could have been more effective outside of Russia as a free man. But at the end of the day, what I understand is that that was a decision that Navalny had to make. That was between him and his higher power and the rest, the rest of the world, all the commentators, all those who see the movie, and say, why did he go back? It's not for us to ask. It was his decision to make. And all I can say is that I, I miss him, and I really hope he survives this brutal ordeal he's currently enduring. You're telling me that, in your understanding, he did not go back to be a martyr, to be killed he went back believing that he could confront the regime and win. Without a doubt, 100%, and whether you agree with his politics or not, everyone can agree that that courage in the face of unspeakable evil is righteous. And it sort of has this quality, if not, if not me, who, and if not now, when. Daniel Rohr, who directed the film Navalny while also painting, just as he did during our conversation. I have one other thing, that I, this is a really important question. Yeah. What are you painting? So, yeah, so it says NPR. His painting is now at NPR.org. His film is on HBO Max and back in theaters. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. There's rain and fog across the region this morning. The showers should taper off this afternoon. We'll have overcast skies and temperatures in the mid-40s. Tonight, upper 20s and low 30s. Low 40s tomorrow and cloudy with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon. There's a good chance of a rain-snow mix overnight into Saturday. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Radio Boston Executive Producer Titus Faladun. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Angry protests grow in Greece and train workers are on strike after a station master was charged in the head-on train collision that killed nearly four dozen people. It's Thursday, March 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly is lowering the price of insulin after it reached record highs. While they're expensive, insurance should cover them and shield people from that cost. And when they become cheap, everybody wins. Also, advice for people in Massachusetts who get food assistance and will see their federal benefits decrease starting today. We recognize that after three years of receiving these extra SNAP benefits that it's going to hit families really hard. And so we want to make sure that we're supporting them holistically as much as possible. And this hour, a landfill in Alabama has been burning for more than three months, raising questions about the need for more regulations. Rain this morning in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The White House is asking Congress for more than $1.5 billion to help the federal government crack down on fraud and identity theft. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the Biden administration wants to focus much of the effort on government programs tied to the coronavirus pandemic. The White House is making a major push to give government watchdogs the resources they need to root out fraud. Their request includes funding to hire more investigators and asking Congress to extend the statute of limitations on fraud involving the big government spending programs meant to help people and businesses during the pandemic. Gene Sperling, a senior advisor to the president, says major criminal syndicates are involved. It takes time to go after the most sophisticated folks. We want to not only capture them, get their funds, we want to send a signal to them uh, that um, uh, that you can run, but you cannot hide. Sperling argues money spent on fraud investigations brings back many times more to government coffers. Tamara Keith, NPR News. For the second day in a row, advisors to the Food and Drug Administration have voted to endorse the first vaccine for the ailment RSV for older adults. NPR's Rob Stein has more. The FDA advisors voted overwhelmingly that a vaccine made by GSK is safe and effective at protecting people aged 60 and older against RSV. RSV is a common respiratory virus that can cause serious illness, especially among older people and young children. A day earlier, the same advisors voted more narrowly to endorse an RSV vaccine made by Pfizer for those aged 60 and older. The advisors who voted against both vaccines cited potential concerns about safety, especially a rare neurological disorder known as Guillain-Barre syndrome. The FDA will decide by May whether to approve the vaccines. Rob Stein, NPR News. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is urging China not to support Russia militarily in the war against Ukraine. The German leader spoke today to the German parliament in Bonn. 
It is disappointing that at the recent meeting of G20 finance ministers, China wasn't prepared to reaffirm what was consensus at the Bali summit, a clear condemnation of the Russian attack on Ukraine. My message to Beijing is clear. Use your influence in Moscow to push for the withdrawal of Russian troops. Schultz was heard here through a BBC interpreter. The German leader will be at the White House tomorrow. He'll hold meetings with President Biden. The State Department says Secretary of State Antony Blinken had a brief encounter with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov today. They're attending a G20 meeting in India. The State Department says Blinken urged Russia to return to nuclear arms control talks. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey is out with her first state budget. She touted her proposal's large investment in education, using over half a billion dollars from the newly passed Fair Share Amendment. That's the surtax on incomes over a million dollars. For the youngest learners, funds will increase the number of child care slots in state-subsidized programs. Healy says the budget also includes a $20 million investment into Mass Reconnect, a program to fund free community college for residents 25 and older without a degree. We have this other revenue source now of the Fair Share Amendment. And I think what we heard loud and clear is that the voters want to make sure that that money is set aside, is to be used exclusively for education and transportation. Healy's budget includes emergency rental assistance for people without a place to live and money for emergency shelters. Boston residents will get another chance today to weigh in on Mayor Michelle Wu's rent control proposal. The policy would restrict rent increases, with some exceptions. The city council is holding a hearing today. It needs approval from that group, state lawmakers, and the governor to become law. State officials haven't said how they feel about the proposal. A new office building in downtown Boston is one of the largest buildings in the world to use what's called passive house design. The design focuses on high efficiency and something called air tightness to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. WBWAR's Paula Mora has more. Boston officials say buildings are responsible for nearly 70 percent of the city's greenhouse gas emissions. The developer of the new 21-floor Winthrop Center used technologies like triple-glazed windows to save energy. Brad Mahoney is Millennium Partners Boston Director of Sustainable Development. You're adding an extra layer of glass. You're adding more insulation. So if I were to be sitting by the exterior right now, I would not be cold. The building spends about 150% less energy than the average office building in Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. An astronaut from Cohasset is in space after a successful overnight launch. Stephen Bowen is leading a three-person crew headed to the International Space Station. They'll be there for six months. The crew was supposed to take off on Monday, but the launch was pushed back due to a technical problem. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Celtics topped the Cleveland Cavaliers 117-113 to last night at the Garden. The Seas will host the Brooklyn Nets tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins will skate with the Buffalo Sabres. Rain showers this morning, cloudy this afternoon. The high will be in the mid to upper 40s, partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the upper 20s. Clouds tomorrow and in the lower 40s. Snow and rain tomorrow night into Saturday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 807. WBUR supporters include Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. On a Thursday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. In Israel, weeks of protests took a major turn yesterday. <laughs> In particular, police used force for the first time against the crowds. Also for the first time, thousands of Israeli protesters blocked major intersections throughout the day. They even besieged a salon where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's wife was getting her hair done. This protester opposes the Israeli government's attempts to weaken the powers of the judiciary. We don't want to lose our country, and we know this is the last fight. If we're going to lose now... That's it. It's done. Of course, this comes after a violent time in the occupied West Bank. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been speaking to protesters and joins us from Tel Aviv. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Leila. So these protests have been going on for weeks. What made yesterday's protests so significant? Israel hasn't seen anything like what happened yesterday. Uh, The Jewish mainstream disrupted the country all day long. I mean, we're talking about people who call themselves patriots, elite military veterans. Some protesters stopped trains, blocked roads. A lot of that was actually coordinated with the police. But then the far-right security minister told police to crack down, and officers did. They used stun grenades, water cannons. Um, Some protesters and officers got lightly injured. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called the protesters anarchists. He actually compared them to the Israeli settlers who went on a violent rampage earlier this week in the West Bank, where uh, Palestinian homes were burned and a Palestinian man was killed. Seems like an unfair comparison. These protesters were not setting buildings on fire, right? No. What do the protesters want to achieve? No, they weren't setting buildings on fire. They were uh, trying to get the government to stop advancing legislation that limits the Supreme Court's ability to strike down laws that don't guarantee basic freedoms. Uh, These protesters are fearing for Israel's future, and uh, all of this is affecting Israel's strong economy, Leila. Mm. The shekel has depreciated this past month, um, and that protester we heard at the beginning, Devorah Cohen, she is a financial advisor. I met her on the street, and she says her Israeli clients are losing confidence. Let's listen. 20-30% of my clients are calling me and asking me what to do. They ask me if they should go and open a bank account abroad, if they should withdraw their pensions. This is the situation that, 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 that we are at. But every day, something new is happening, something more extreme, more shocking. You know, she's referring there also to the recent violence in the West Bank. So, Daniel, with these protests in Israel and the recent violence in the occupied West Bank, where do you see all this heading? 
Well, Netanyahu says he is ready for dialogue with mm. the opposition. There are some attempts for a compromise for some kind of watered-down version of this controversial uh, judicial legislation. There is also some friction within Netanyahu's own governing coalition, and that makes some people here wonder if the government's days are numbered. Netanyahu is defending uh, his comparison of the West Bank settlers who went on a rampage earlier this week and yesterday's protesters. He says he was referring to both as being lawbreakers. But, you know, Israel has made very, very few arrests out of the hundreds mm -hmm. of Israeli settlers who went on that rampage. And Israel's far-right finance minister actually said that that Palestinian town where the rampage took place should be wiped out. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price called those comments disgusting. He said Netanyahu should disavow them. Netanyahu has not done so yet. And Pierre's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much, Daniel. You're welcome. Insulin to treat diabetes should soon cost less at the drugstore. Eli Lilly, the giant company headquartered in my home state of Indiana, says it is cutting the price and expanding a program that would limit out-of-pocket costs to $35 per month. Some people have been paying a lot more than that. Stacy Dusetzina is a professor of health policy at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and has been following this development. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so somebody gave me this figure that... It won't surprise you, but it, it makes my eyes pop out of my head. Seven million Americans rely on insulin. How desperately do they need it, and how much has it been costing them? Well, as you probably have heard, if you've paid any attention to drug pricing hearings that have happened in Congress over the years, there's always someone who has been affected by the price of insulin, including things like having family members ration insulin and dying as a result of that activity. So it is a very serious problem for people to not be able to access insulin and to ration insulin, not use it as prescribed. So this is a pretty big deal for people who have struggled to afford to pay for insulin and take it as they need. Yeah. And we should be clear, this is for many people something that is a lifetime. You have to take it for your the rest of your life. It's not a one-time thing. Absolutely. Which makes it really significant that over the past 20 years, manufacturers have boosted insulin prices by more than 600%. Was there some real reason that they needed to do that? So I think this is, gets to a complication between what type of price we think about when we think about the price of insulin. So the price that has gone up is the list price, and that's the price that Lilly has just announced that they're cutting. When we think about what our health plans and their pharmacy benefits managers pay, they negotiate that price down. So the price hasn't gone up as much for health plans. The problem is, a key problem, is that a lot of patients pay based on that list price. Hmm. So if you're uninsured, you pay that high price. And if you have to pay deductibles or a percentage of your drug's price, you'll pay based on that high list price. So changing the list price is really key here in why this announcement is something that people have um, really focused on the okay. last day. This is really helpful. So this is not maybe 7 million people who are suddenly going to pay a lower price. People who had a good health plan were probably not paying all that much to begin with. But people who have lesser insurance coverage or no insurance coverage are the people who can really benefit here. That's absolutely right. Many people with commercial health plans have insurance that covers insulin more generously than what's being proposed. So they pay less than $35 a month for their insulin. 
but uninsured people absolutely will benefit from this once these lower list prices are available uh, for products in pharmacies. It's easy to say that Eli Lilly then is doing the right thing, but tell me then were they doing the wrong thing over the past 20 years as they let the price go up and up and up for the most vulnerable people? I think that that's probably fair. You know, this is a move that they're making, lowering the list price of older insulin products. Um, and it's these are really products where, because of fierce price negotiation between uh, products and with biosimilar options available, they're really not losing much to be able to change the prices now for these products. So while I think they deserve some credit for making this change, I think that they're really gaining a lot from a reputation standpoint, um, and they're not losing a lot from a revenue standpoint to make the change now. Oh, because I understand, I understand. But very briefly, could this lead to the reduction in price for other drugs? Um, it's possible. And in fact, for some of the other insulin products, I have seen that there are calls from senators to lower those prices as well. But I don't think I would assume this would lead to lower prices for other brand name drugs that aren't older products and aren't in the same competitive situation. Stacy Dusset-Zina with Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Thanks for this clarity. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. While abortion restrictions spread across the United States, abortion access has been expanding in Latin America. Some abortion rights advocates in the U.S. are now turning to the South for ideas and support. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports. As an immigrant from Colombia to the United States, Paula Avila Guillen has watched the two countries move further apart on abortion rights. Right now, we are in very different paths. Avila Guillen is executive director of the Women's Equality Center in New York, which works on abortion rights across the Americas. She notes that over the past few years, her colleagues in Colombia, Argentina, and Mexico have seen victories, either via the courtroom or through legislation. And in the United States, we are going backwards. So I think that there is a, a very crucial moment to learn from each other, to exchange ideas. This week, abortion rights advocates from several Latin American countries and the U.S. met in Washington to do just that. With the U.S. Capitol as a backdrop, they gathered in D.C.'s Freedom Plaza, chanting and tossing green handkerchiefs into the air. The bandanas have become a symbol of reproductive rights in Latin America, a symbol they hope will spread across the U.S. as restrictions spread across many states. Meanwhile, Latin American anti-abortion rights activists like Julia Regina de Cardinal are drawing inspiration from last summer's U.S. Supreme Court decision upending abortion rights. This has repercussion in the whole world. Regina de Cardinal, who spoke by phone from El Salvador, leads a group affiliated with Human Life International, an organization based in the U.S. that promotes abortion restrictions around the world. For us, it was the best news that the United States finally got to tell their citizens that killing babies in the womb is not a human right. For abortion rights supporters in Latin America, the goal is to expand access even in those countries where it's already legal. One idea, Avila Guillen says, is to set up funds like those in the U.S. that help patients pay for things like travel and childcare. One of the challenges that we are facing is how we implement successfully these laws. 
She says they're also working to strengthen networks that supply abortion pills across the region. Maria Antonieta Alcalde is director of the abortion rights group IPASS in Latin America and the Caribbean. We have been working for more than a year building those networks that are working from Mexico, in Texas, but in other states. And we know that there are ways to put the supplies on the hands of women. With a ruling in Texas expected any day that could curtail access to abortion pills, Latin American activists say they're preparing to work across borders to help patients in the U.S. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a landfill in Alabama has been on fire for more than three months, leading to questions about how waste is regulated. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, developers, landlords, and tenants agree there is not enough housing in Boston and the housing that we do have is too expensive. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has a proposal to help address the problem by capping rent increases. But some advocates say it could make things worse. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Today, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will sign a proclamation announcing Crispus Attucks Commemoration Day. Attucks was killed by British soldiers in 1770 in the Boston Massacre. He was of both African and Native American descent, and he's widely regarded as the first person killed in the American Revolution. In your forecast, rain this morning, then cloudy with a high of 46 this afternoon. Tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 29. Overnight, skies clear, but tomorrow clouds slowly return for an overcast day with a high near 42. There's a slight chance of rain late Friday afternoon, then snow is likely overnight into Saturday. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. You know that smell when you're passing by and somebody is burning trash in their backyard? I can remember the first time I ever smelled it. It's, it's memorable. And apparently it happens on a giant scale at landfills. Thousands of landfills catch fire across the United States every year, and some of those fires last days. Some of those fires last weeks. And in Alabama, one landfill has been burning for more than three months. Mary Scott Hodgen of member station WBHM checked in with the neighbors. 
Daniel Cash was out of town when the private landfill first caught fire. My mom had called. She said that there was a fire. I said, well, hopefully everything's all right. We're heading back there now. It was right after Thanksgiving. Cash and his fiance drove towards their mobile home in St. Clair County, a wooded residential area north of Birmingham. As they crested the hill above their home, they saw flames. When I come looking up that way, it was <laughs> such a big area on fire up there, and there was so much smoke, and what it looked like a sunset from the colors of the fire. It's not yet known how the fire started, but the smoke has continued for months. It doesn't smell like a wood-burning fire at all. Chrissy Harmon lives in a lake house less than a half a mile from the landfill. She's taped up all the windows to try to keep the acidic fumes out. It makes me feel like my throat is on fire at times. Like if you've ever had strep and it feels like razor blades cutting. Residents say the smoke has caused headaches, nosebleeds, congestion, and coughs. State and local officials have advised people to relocate if necessary. That option is off the table for many residents. Some don't have the resources to move. Others, like Harmon, can't just leave. We have a disabled child. We can't really take him just anywhere. The burning landfill was supposed to only accept green waste, like trees and leaves. But state inspection reports show it contains unauthorized material, like rubber tires and scrap metal. The privately owned site is not regulated because Alabama doesn't regulate green waste. The state only inspected the landfill when complaints were filed. Matthew Heiser is an on-scene coordinator with the Environmental Protection Agency. He says they received reports about the fire soon after it started burning. And throughout all of those reports, we were in contact and communication with the state of Alabama. It wasn't until January that Alabama asked the EPA to conduct air sampling. That's when the agency found heightened levels of toxic chemicals and stepped in to extinguish the fire. Heiser says the agency frequently responds to these kinds of incidents. And the team that we have out there is extremely experienced in a a fire in a landfill of this nature. We reached out to the operator of the landfill. They declined to comment for this story. The EPA plans to have the fire out by the end of March. Nationwide, the agency says it doesn't track data on landfill fires. But according to the U.S. Fire Administration, there are tens of thousands of fires every year at landfills, dumpsters, and trash compactors. Robert Percival is an environmental law professor at the University of Maryland. He says federal regulations around landfills are limited and are mostly concerned with hazardous waste. He says the EPA leaves it up to state and local authorities to enact more rules. Well, it's kind of the story of environmental law generally. We, we react when there's a problem. In recent years, some states have elected to tighten their regulations. Many residents and advocates in Alabama hope the state follows suit. During a regulatory commission meeting in February, local attorney David Lutter urged Alabama officials to adopt more oversight of green waste. There are probably hundreds of these landfills in Alabama that are not being regulated and that have the potential to become environmental disasters just like the one in St. Clair County. The director of the Alabama Department of Environmental Management, Lance LaFleur, wouldn't say whether or not he supports adding regulation. He says the state doesn't know how many similar sites might exist. Well, since they're not regulated, we don't really have a a way to uh, uh, give account of those. Residents like Chrissy Harmon say that answer isn't good enough. 
if we're going to have a government agency that regulates landfills, then they probably should regulate landfills. Harmon says air quality has improved in recent weeks, but it depends on wind conditions. She continues to experience health effects like headaches and a sore throat. She and many residents will always worry about possible long-term impacts. For NPR News, I'm Mary Scott Hodgen in Birmingham. Okay, here's one of those stories that makes me want sweets. A bakery in New York is serving up cookies and second chances. And the woman behind it is Janie Deegan. We have an open-door hiring policy, meaning that, you know, no matter what your life situation is right now or has been in the past, we look at the person you show up as today at the interview as the candidate, the whole candidate and the whole picture. Deegan started Janie's life-changing baked goods about a decade ago after emerging from a struggle with addiction and homelessness. Now she's offering a new start to employees like Jane Hensley, who was trying to find work after almost three years in prison. She was the first person to offer me a job. And that was a miracle to me that someone would be willing to hire me and trust me, considering that I was basically unhirable. Hensley says she's rebuilding her life at the bakery and at Columbia University, where she's studying film. I'm in Janie's shoes right now, and I'm still kind of starting off completely from scratch. And she's the first person to advocate for anyone that's made a mistake and give them the same opportunity that she was given. Janie Deegan, I can understand. She says her own sobriety didn't come easy, but her love of baking helped her reconnect. I started bringing baked goods everywhere I went because I had nothing else to contribute, I felt. You know, I really credit people eating my baked goods and seeing their reactions with helping me build self-esteem and self-love. Something to contribute. Wow. Deegan started her business in a tiny apartment with a mini fridge full of butter. But today her bakery has two locations in New York City and she is working on getting her signature pie crust cookies. Wow. Into grocery stores. I really think that people giving me like a billion second chances, despite my background and despite what I was up against, is what helped me get to where I am today. Customers are giving people a second chance when they go ahead and have a second cookie. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, investors had been anticipating Elon Musk to lay out a new master plan for a Tesla. Instead, they got a very different announcement. It's 829. You're part of the WBUR community. That's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, March 8th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details are at WBUR.org slash open meetings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu slash MBA. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Crews in the mountains of California are working around the clock, plowing roads to try to reach people stranded by heavy snow. The snowfall in recent days is being measured by the feet, especially in the Sierra Nevada. Authorities say skiers and off-roaders have been rescued in some areas, but they warn it could take more than a week to reach everyone. 
Dawn Rowe chairs the San Bernardino County Board of Supervisors in Southern California. She says crews are working 24-7 to reach people who need help. That is our number one priority is to get our residents the, the, the food, the medicine, and access that they need. Yosemite National Park is closed indefinitely. Officials there report 15 feet of snow in some areas of the park. A SpaceX capsule is on its way to the International Space Station. Three, two, one. Engines full power and liftoff. A crew six. Go Dragon, go Falcon. Four crew members are heading to the ISS after lifting off from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida this morning. Two are NASA astronauts, including Mission Commander Stephen Bowen. The others are an astronaut from the United Arab Emirates and a Russian cosmonaut. The four will replace a crew that's been aboard the space station since October. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Governor Moore Healy's new budget includes a large chunk of money for transportation. Nearly half a billion dollars brought in from the new so-called millionaire's tax will be earmarked for this purpose. And Healy wants a large portion of that to go to the MBTA. The key focus right now is workforce, as you can imagine. But, you know, part of building a a vibrant, functioning economy is making sure that we have the vibrancy and the connectivity in our public transit system. The governor's budget includes money to design the long-planned connection between the red and blue lines near Beacon Hill. Members of a white supremacist group are requesting that a trial in their New Hampshire civil rights case be delayed. As Todd Bookman reports, the group argues it can't find a lawyer in the state to represent them. NSC 131 and two of its members are named as defendants in a civil rights action brought by the state. Prosecutors allege they violated the law last summer by trespassing onto a bridge in Portsmouth and hanging a banner reading, Keep New England White. During a brief hearing, members of NSC 131 told the judge that they've been unable to find a local lawyer to represent them. William Gens, a Massachusetts attorney, has stepped forward, but the judge initially denied his appointment as counsel. Afterwards, Gens said the group's First Amendment rights are on the line. And this case right now is crossing over from a free speech case into a due process case because these guys can't get counsel. The judge said he'll consider the issue and would look to schedule a trial later this year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. The decor of a sculpture park and museum in Lincoln will shut down all of its indoor exhibits later this month. The closure will last for up to three years. The Trustees of Reservations runs the museum. It says the closure will allow the museum to update its HVAC system. The outdoor sculpture park will remain open. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. The Celtics beat the Cleveland Cavaliers last night at the Garden. The final was 117 to 113. The Celts will host the Brooklyn Nets tomorrow. Tonight, the Bruins will go for their ninth straight win as they host the Buffalo Sabres. At spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox and Astros played to a 4-4 tie. The Sox will take on the Phillies this afternoon. Fog and 
rain this morning, followed by an overcast afternoon in the mid-40s. Tonight, mostly cloudy skies gradually clear. It'll be in the upper 20s and low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy and low 40s. A slight chance of rain in the afternoon, then a good chance of a rain-snow mix overnight. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York. Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Tesla promised a big announcement last night, a new master plan for the company. Some people expected to hear about a new Tesla vehicle. Instead, they heard a speech from Elon Musk. NPR's Camila Dominoski was watching. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, this is great. So rarely do we hear anything from Elon <laughs> Musk. Uh, now he speaks. What did he tell the investors? Well, this was all about climate change. He opened this event, this Investor Day, with, I mean, in some ways it was it was vintage Tesla because Tesla was always about saving the planet. Here, here's a bit of what Musk said. I really want today to be not just about Tesla investors who own stock, but uh, really anyone who is an investor on Earth. What we're trying to convey is a message of hope and optimism. Um, and and hope, optimism that is based on on actual physics and, and, and real calculations, not, it's not wishful thinking. And so this was the master plan that he laid out. It was nothing more or less than the fact that it's possible to pivot away from fossil fuels completely. And he put a price tag on it. He said that would cost $10 trillion to planet Earth, which he said would be less than we would spend on fossil fuels over the same period. Now, obviously, lots of groups do talk about transitioning away from fossil fuels as something that's feasible, albeit very challenging. Um, those groups also tend to emphasize things like public transit or reducing car use overall, which Musk did not. But he emphasized this was a big chunk of the night that a shift to sustainable energy will happen. Okay, that's all very interesting. Wades into public policy. But mm -hmm. why had investors instead been hoping that the head of Tesla would say something about a new product? Well, I mean, the joke is because they are a car company, right? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> but the, there, there's more to it. This is actually tied to the climate goals because having specifically more cheap, cheaper, more affordable electric vehicles is essential for widespread adoption of them. It's also essential for Tesla's financial future which is why investors care. Tesla says there is a next generation of vehicles on the way, that they will be cheaper and that they will be better. Investors and analysts were really hoping to see them last night, and that did not happen. I just want to put some numbers on the table. Some years ago, the cheapest Tesla was like $100,000 or something. They've unveiled less expensive models, but they're still pretty expensive as cars go, right? Well, the Model 3 is actually cheaper than the average new car in the United States, but uh, the average new vehicle these days is incredibly expensive. The Model 3, even after tax credits, is still more than $35,000, and other Teslas are more expensive than that. Okay, so if they didn't unveil that cheaper vehicle, what did they have to say for themselves at this meeting for investors from the company? 
Well, they did talk about changes in manufacturing that they claim would cut costs in half for future vehicles, basically building the front and the back of the vehicle separately and then putting them together with the sides. Tesla has done all kinds of experiments and changes with manufacturing in the past, some of which, like pivoting entirely to robots, didn't really go very well for the company. Others, like incorporating the battery into the bottom of the vehicle, that have been pretty transformative for the industry. So that's something to watch moving forward, this new manufacturing technique. There were lots of other smaller details that they announced that were sort of all over the place and designed to show that they're still innovating or still cutting costs, even though they don't have that much anticipated new cheaper vehicle to unveil. Okay, so after all that, how do investors feel about the company? Well, they may not have loved the direction that this talk went in last night. They do overall feel a lot better about Tesla than they did just a few months ago. There were big price cuts, strong earnings, and drivers do still really like the cars. NPR's Camila Dominowski, thanks so much. Thank you. Jurors in the South Carolina murder trial of former attorney Alec Murdoch are expected to start deliberations later today. The prosecutors spent almost three hours presenting their closing arguments on Wednesday. They are trying to convince jurors that this once prominent attorney murdered his wife and son in the summer of 2021. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen has been inside the courtroom for this nearly six-week-long trial, and she joins us live from Walterboro. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Quite the case you're covering. People are fascinated. It's the subject of a Netflix docu-series. Could you break down what Murdoch is accused of and what you are here what you've been hearing in court? Yeah, sure. I mean, where do I begin? It is a long, <laughs> complicated case. As the lead prosecutor, Creighton Waters, explained early on, you know, Murdoch is not only charged with murdering his loved ones, but has yet to be tried on charges he embezzled millions from his family's law firm and tried to stage his own death so his surviving son could collect life insurance money. Hmm. What's more, Murdoch's slain son had recently been charged in a deadly boating accident in which Murdoch was being sued civilly. Now, Prosecutor Waters had to spell this all out to prove motive. That is, Murdoch was a desperate man when he killed his loved ones to try to create a distraction and get sympathy. So how does the prosecution say Murdoch murdered his wife and son? Well, Waters says Murdoch lured Maggie and Paul to the family's rural hunting property where weapons were readily available. He says Paul was shot first with a shotgun near the dog kennels, and he didn't see it coming. Same with Maggie, because Maggie sees what happens and she comes running over there, running to her baby. Probably the last thing on her mind, thinking that it was him who had done this. Now, Waters says Maggie was then shot multiple times with an assault-style rifle, which, at the time, the family owned three. Two are now missing. But the key moment came when the prosecution played a video recovered from Paul's phone just last year. It reveals Paul, Maggie, and Murdoch's voice just minutes before they were killed. The video shattered Murdoch's alibi. He had long said he was never at the crime scene. Why in the world? Would an innocent, reasonable father and husband lie about that and lie about it so early if he didn't know that was there? Murdoch later took the witness stand, admitting he was there briefly, but said he quickly got out of there. Mm. Waters pointed to that lie and testimony from dozens of colleagues and clients who say Murdoch also lied to them to steal millions, including the family of his late housekeeper. And he fooled Maggie and Paul, too and they paid for it with their lives. 
don't let him fool you too. Wow, a lot to digest there. So that's the prosecution side. What is the defense expected to say as it presents closing arguments today? The defense says it will take just about two hours. It's really pointing to time in this case to argue the motive is what they call ludicrous. The family had a loving relationship. There are no murder weapons that have been found, bloody clothing or fingerprints. And Murdoch could have not have possibly done this alone. But the prosecution has pointed out repeatedly, Murdoch is a skilled attorney and a part-time solicitor from a long line of solicitors who knows how to hide evidence. That's South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, nearly 700,000 Massachusetts households have been bracing for today when federal food assistance benefits that increased during the pandemic go back to their previous level. We have the state's Associate Commissioner of Food Security and Nutrition Programs to talk about the options for those families as they cope with the change. Rain and patchy fog this morning, clouds in mid-40s this afternoon, tonight mostly cloudy in the upper 20s. Overnight, skies gradually clear, then they get cloudy again Friday morning. It'll be in the low 40s with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Snow and rain are likely overnight into Saturday. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 843. WBUR supporters include Broadway in Boston, celebrating 20 years with Lexus with the newly announced 23-24 season. Featuring Disney's Frozen, Moulin Rouge, Girl from the North Country, Company, and MJ the Musical. Season tickets and more information are available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Boston-based Smart Labs is taking over the third floor of the Cambridge Side Mall. The company plans to turn the area into a co-working lab space. It'll be Smart Labs' largest location yet and is expected to open later next year. Marlboro-based Boston Scientific is cutting down its workforce in Houston. It's moving 120 jobs there to Minnesota. The Boston Business Journal reports the transition will happen next month. It follows Boston Scientific's acquisition of a Minnesota company in 2021. Atwood's Tavern in Cambridge will permanently close its doors at the end of the month. The tavern has called the Cambridge Street location home for 16 years. The owners haven't yet said why they're closing. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from American Wendy Schmidt. Through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. People who get help buying food from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, have been receiving extra benefits since the pandemic began three years ago. 
But federal funding has run out, and today is the last day for the extra payments. Officials say the change will affect more than 640,000 households in Massachusetts. Here to tell us more is Brittany Mangini, the state's Associate Commissioner of Food Security and Nutrition Programs. Thanks so much for joining us, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. So more than a million people are going to be affected by this, and they're losing about $150 in monthly benefits on average. What's your main message to them right now? My main message is that we recognize that after three years of receiving these extra SNAP benefits, that it's going to hit families really hard. And so we want to make sure that we're supporting them holistically as much as possible. And so what that includes is making sure that folks are getting the full amount of their regular SNAP benefits. And so uh, certain households can make sure they're letting us know about deductions that they might not have told us about before, such as medical expenses if you are uh, over the age of 60 or have a disability. Telling us about those expenses can make a difference in your ongoing SNAP benefit. And the state has put together a website with a lot of information about that. It's mass.gov backslash extra COVID SNAP. And on there, you'll find a form for people to help uh, submit their medical expenses. There's information on other resources because we recognize that this is going to hit people's household budgets overall. And so we want to make sure that people are maximizing all the different programs that they're eligible for around housing, utility, et cetera. And so there's a lot of information and links there, as well as connections to local food pantries and community feeding sites. But as they try to access those benefits, there are qualifications, right? Can you go through those a little bit? Absolutely, right. So uh, what I said, certain households, what I meant by that is um, households who have a person who has a disability or is over the age of 60 is eligible to submit medical expenses. If a household has dependent care costs for a child or an adult dependent, they can also share those expenses with us. And uh, lastly, this is for all SNAP households. If their housing costs have gone up since they applied or, or last spoke to us, they should let us know because that will have an impact on their ongoing SNAP benefits as well. And they can do that through your central portal there that you mentioned, the website? There's a lot of ways folks can tell us information. It's really about what's best for them. And so we have several self-service options, including our online portal at dtaconnect.com or through our mobile application, DTA Connect. Folks can also call our assistance line at 1-877-382-2363, or they can download the forms that we have online and mail them to our uh, processing center, which the address is on the website. Are there any efforts on the state level to expand these benefits and keep them at the level they have been at? In the recent supplemental budget that the governor filed, she demonstrated how serious she's taking this issue, especially for our most vulnerable families, by funding a, a additional SNAP supplemental benefits, but it would be at 40% of the rate that they were previously receiving for three months. And so we are actively watching um, the legislature to see how this all plays out regarding the supplemental budget. How does this specific change happening right now play into the state's overall approach to food insecurity and helping people who are in that worsening situation amid inflation and the housing crisis and things like that? Unfortunately, a loss of, of benefits that you've been receiving for three years is going to undermine those efforts to support food insecure families. But we're really committed to making sure folks are fully aware of the best ways to stretch their SNAP benefits. So the Healthy Incentives Program, or HIP, as it's commonly known, is a really great way for families to do that. And it allows families to receive $40, $60, or $80, depending on their household size, as a reimbursement for fresh fruits and vegetables that they purchase 
through participating farm vendors, and they can find local participating vendors through visiting dtafinder.com. Brittany Mangini is the Massachusetts Associate Commissioner of Food Security and Nutrition Programs. Thanks so much for being here and speaking with us, Brittany. Thank you for your partnership in getting this important information out, Rupa. I appreciate it. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report explains the significance of Eli Lilly's decision to slash insulin prices. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Peter O'Dowd is on the line to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Peter. Hey, good morning. I'm going to keep it cheerful today. I don't know if you're a fan of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, a mountain stage the live it's a live music show it's celebrating 40 years uh this year over the course of a thousand shows wow they've had so many icons in music on the stage uh, including in 1991 get this rem comes to charleston west virginia they weren't touring that year and the thousand seat theater was the biggest venue that they had done in months (laughs) Uh, here's what the show sounded like you imagine that? I mean, that would just be amazing. Larry Gross, um, the original host, said it was incredible because international media was descending on the mountain stage just to get a glimpse of REM in the early 90s. And so I take it you're an REM fan. Well, I mean, I kind of grew up in that era. So yes, um, I've never seen him live or anything like that. I've never seen him at all. So yeah, it would be amazing. All right. That was a very careful answer. Thank you, Peter. (laughs) You're welcome. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Congress wants to make it harder to invest according to your personal values. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. The Name Your Price tool provides a range of coverage options. Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Congress has passed a bill to prevent retirement fund managers from considering environmental, social, and governance factors, or ESG, when making investment decisions. There's growing interest in ESG funds, which also monitor for such factors as board independence from management, whether a company promotes women and minorities, or its environmental impact. Critics say these prioritize political correctness over getting the best returns, but President Biden is expected to veto this. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. ESG investing has become a political punching bag, especially after the Biden administration's Labor Department issued a rule last November saying retirement fund managers can consider ESG factors when making investment decisions. The Trump administration had issued the opposite directive. Two Democratic senators joined Republicans to pass the bill that would go back to the Trump-era rule, Joe Manchin and John Tester. Manchin echoed Republican criticism of ESG investing. 
I rise today to warn against our administration's unrelenting campaign to weaken our energy security, our national security, and our economic security to advance truly their environmental and social agenda. Advocates of ESG investing say it's not just a way of doing social good, such as tackling climate change, but also a way of hedging against future risks. After all, climate change is here. I'm Novasafa for Marketplace. A huge factor in an investment fund's return are the level of fees charged by the money manager, whether or not a portfolio screens for environmental, social, or governance criteria. Markets Dow futures are up slightly less than a tenth percent, but NASDAQ futures are down one percent. Let's dig into the story that broke yesterday on the cost of insulin, the medicine that many diabetes patients have to take for life. Drug company Eli Lilly announced it is cutting the price of its most commonly used insulins by 70 percent. It's also capping the out-of-pocket cost that patients pay at $35 a month, both for people who don't have insurance and for people with private insurance, as long as they pick up the prescriptions at certain participating pharmacies. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has more. Insulin can be prohibitively expensive, sometimes hundreds of dollars a month, even with insurance. Marta Woshinska at the Brookings Institution says the fact that Eli Lilly is capping out-of-pocket costs and lowering the list price for several of its insulins is a big deal for a lot of people. For many patients that have either high-deductible health plans or patients who, instead of having flat co-pays, actually have co-insurance, well, the list price really matters for them because when they go to the pharmacy, they pay the list. But Dr. Kavita Patel, a primary care physician in D.C., says these changes do not mean that everyone with diabetes who takes insulin will suddenly be paying less. For one thing... Everybody reads this and you think, oh, it's all the insulins, and it's not. Lots of other insulin will still be just as expensive as ever. And two, Patel says, even for people who do take one of these now lower-priced insulins, a lot will still depend on what insurance companies work out with different pharmacies. In all situations, I say, you know, consumer beware, because it sounds incredible. It is incredible, but it does not automatically translate to people seeing all of a sudden a flood of access or easy access to insulin at low cost. But she says it is a step in the right direction. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. The loneliness epidemic, that's the way the U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has described a decades-long rise in Americans feeling cut off from interpersonal connections that humans need. Really, given all our electronic connections from Snapchat to Facebook to Discord? But do our screens actually fight loneliness or make it worse? Today, Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman has the second of two stories on the economics of loneliness. Two out of three adults in America report they suffer from loneliness. Loneliness does have really strong deleterious consequences. Matt Johnson teaches psychology at Holt International Business School and has written about loneliness for Psychology Today. He says it's correlated with heart disease, stress, anxiety, and the proliferation of social media. When this need isn't met in your organic social environment, the market converges upon this. We see the rise of social media happening around the same time as this sort of loneliness epidemic. Johnson says social media platforms can sometimes mitigate loneliness if they're used to foster real-life social connections. 
where you're actually getting in touch, you're keeping in touch with one another's lives. That's the kind of social network Dina Hindi had in mind for her 84-year-old mother in Queens, New York. Hindi's father died from Alzheimer's several years ago. Her mother was left with few friends. Hindi figured... There's got to be a lot of lonely people that are widows. So that's why I just created a meetup group to see if I can get people together. A bunch of older women found Hindi's meetup group online. They now go out regularly in person to schmooze at neighborhood restaurants. And you know what? The women in the group are very appreciative because they're seniors. A lot of people don't have any family. Even if this is not for a long-lasting friendship, it's just a good time. Psychologist Matt Johnson says many people, especially younger Americans, turn to social media platforms that don't help with loneliness. The more follower type of social media, where you're engaging with people with massive followings and you're looking at their TikTok videos, tweets, or Instagram content. You don't know them personally. You probably never meet them in real life. There are ways employers can combat the loneliness epidemic, says researcher Ann Bowers at health insurer Cigna. They can reduce the deluge of 24-7 work online and help employees strengthen connections with family, friends, and community. A healthy work-life balance for employees is very important. Doing flexible work schedules and email blackout periods. Bauer says employees who report they have a good work-life balance, social companionship, and satisfying communication at work are half as likely to be lonely as workers who don't. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. This is part of a collaboration with Call to Mind, American Public Media's mental health initiative. What else can help lonely employees? That's at marketplace.org if you missed that report on the air yesterday. Now back to markets. We do have 10-year interest rates moving well above 4% this morning, 4.08% at the moment. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. It's a foggy, rainy morning in the greater Boston region. The showers should end early this afternoon and we'll have overcast skies in the mid-40s. Tonight, upper 20s. Tomorrow, low 40s and overcast. We may see some rain in the late afternoon. Friday night into Saturday, there's a good chance we'll get a rain-snow mix. It's 41 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.